bucks. Never stop here. You're listening to Green and Growing, hosted by Sparky Pfeiffer and Nathan Marzion. AC Sparky Pfeiffer, 1250 AM, The Fan, here with you. Follow me on Twitter at Sparky Radio. Nathan Marzion, like usual, over there. Follow him at Nathan Marzion. Special guest this week. He's the best. Eric Name, Bucks beat writer for The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Eric underscore name. Eric, thanks for taking some time for Green and Growing, which you can download on your Odyssey app, wherever you download your podcast at also on the Odyssey Sports YouTube page, where we are currently live streaming, like we do all of our podcasts uh, live streaming at. Uh, Eric, let's start here. Before we started, uh, our good old boy, Nathan Marzian, never misses a moment and says, happy game six anniversary, obviously from the NBA Finals a couple of years ago. Uh, we had Ted Davis on, the Bucks play-by-play announcer, uh, former Bucks play-by-play announcer, last podcast. That was amazing. Uh, we went down memory lane with him uh, throughout the playoffs, the regular season, how that whole thing played out. What stands out to you? I mean, obviously you had the, the huge Giannis interview after and all of that. I remember that. But as far as from your standpoint, for people that don't know Eric or didn't know Eric before he became famous, I did. Uh, Eric name was like the, one of the biggest bucks fans in the world, uh, prior to landing the gig and then getting to see, I'm sure now it's not your favorite team, right? You can't root for anybody BS. Uh, but getting to see the team that you grew up watching win a championship has to be pretty sweet. I mean, the thing that sticks out is they did it right. Like that, that was the whole thing. You, you had the team get good, win 60 games and you're, just thinking, well, if that team couldn't win a championship, uh, you know, they're too young. And then you have the bubble happen and it's like, well, maybe they, that was a fluke last year. Who, who knows? And now I think with having the last two years after it, you think about like, Oh, it actually is really hard. What they did that year that, you know, they won the championship and everyone starts thinking about dynasty and back to back and kind of how all this stuff works. Uh, The last two years have been a pretty harsh reminder of, this stuff is really hard. Like you need to get pretty lucky during that. And if you don't have Chris Middleton or you don't have Giannis for half of the playoff run that you're in, in in any year, it's going to be really hard and you're probably not going to do it. And uh, to me, like that's the thing now that I think in the moment, I obviously there were like a number of things like Giannis going down the, Bucks losing game five in Brooklyn, like all of those things made you think like, yeah, that was pretty hard, but I don't think you really like comprehended until the last two years happened where they have a, another team that's stacked, that's ready to make a big run. And then one thing goes wrong and all of a sudden they, they don't do it. So to me, I think that's the thing that sticks out to me is that like, no matter what that flag is still going to fly that banner is still going to be hanging up in Pfizer form or whatever that arena is called 30 years from now like (laughs) whatever it is it's going to exist it's not going anywhere it happened it was incredibly difficult uh and it happened that's what sticks out to me is that it actually happened because uh, I mean I honestly never thought as someone who grew up in the state of Wisconsin I was going to see a Bucks championship me either I I saw one happen and you can't take it away yeah, Eric, great to have you on and appreciate everything you do for the Bucks community. I wanted to ask, what moment did you really start to think like they're going to win? The, or not that because we didn't know for sure. There were so many ups and downs. But when you really started to believe that they could win the title, because we asked Ted Davis, he kind of said game seven against Brooklyn. I feel like either for most people, it's either game seven against Brooklyn or it's 
you know, game four or five of the finals when people really started to be like, oh my gosh, they're actually going to do this. Um, I just want to get your take on that. Uh, the steel Malleup. That like that's the moment. Eric's yeah. been a negative guy most of his life, though. Let's be honest. That's part of it. No, I'm just I mean, joking I, around. I, I, I am always a pessimist and, and I am always thinking about like the worst possible thing. Hey, never never trust the Bucks, right? Never trust the Bucks. <laughs> hey, rules are rules. Rules are right. Rules. That was the number one rule with the Milwaukee Bucks for, for so long. And yeah, I mean I truly didn't uh, – I mean, you think back to the start of that finals, and there was a clip uh, going around on Twitter the last uh, – sometime in the last 24 hours that was showing the Suns' offense, uh, moving the ball around. And at the same time, I was marveling at the Bucks' defense at the time and how quick they, they could move. But that happened in Game 2, uh, that possession that went around. Game 2, right before halftime, the Bucks were making a run, and then that happens where the Suns make 10 passes in a possession, the Bucks defend it perfectly, and then at the end, there's still an and one. And I just remember after those first two games thinking, like, they have nothing for the Suns. Like, what are, what are they going to do? How are they going to get out of that? Because the Suns are running them ragged. Like, they can't defend them. It's not going to work. And then, obviously, you have game three, and you have the big shots and the big block in game four. So you're able to, like – then start to believe it a little bit. But to me, it never seemed like it was actually going to happen until Drew steals the ball, throws the alley-oop, Giannis dunks, that whole arena goes silent. That, to me, was the moment where I was like, okay, they they can do this thing. And, and honestly, once they got to Milwaukee, I remember talking to Sam Amick, our national writer, and being like, all right, so what did you book for the hotel in Phoenix? And he was like, you actually think we're going back? And I was like... You know, you always have to like think about the possibilities and like what could happen. He was like, "No, I think I think they're gonna win." And I was like, mm, "I'm not quite there yet." Like I've I've seen them have these ups and downs. Like right. the worst thing could always happen. Like this is written too perfectly. Like it can't actually be Bucks and Six. Like it, it, there's got to be one more like bump in the road, and maybe it won't ever happen. Maybe they'll lose both these games and and never win. But I was like, it can't, it can't be. So maybe never. But I, I would say I think the the steel malleup was when I actually felt like, okay, th- this could happen. Yeah, I I remember thinking the exact same thing. Like going into Game Six, I'm like, it would be the most Bucks thing ever for them to lose this game, <laughs> and we're going back to a Game Seven, and it's like, oh my God, we we had it right there. Um, and even after that second quarter was awful in Game Six, and it was like, here we go. Like, of course it's going to be a grind. You know, they were up twenty in the first quarter. Of course it can't be that easy. Right. Um, but uh, Sparky, what what are your thoughts on that? Did you? I wanted to ask you too. Like, were you uh, game games? Because for me, I think honestly, I really started to believe like they can do this after Game Seven against Brooklyn. I was like, this might be it. Like this this was the the hurdle to get over to get to the finals. And you know, I did think we were better than anyone in the West. Um, but obviously, then Giannis goes down, and then the first two games, like there's plenty of stuff then to all of a sudden bring you back down to reality after that. But in the moment, I kind of I would probably say Game Seven against Brooklyn was my moment. I don't know. Um, about you, Sparky? Uh, for me, I think it was once they got through the nets after everybody wanted Bud fired, like in the middle of the series, just fire Bud and let's anybody on the bench coach this team. They're going to lose uh, the series otherwise. By the way, everybody includes the organization. Like, let, let's let's be clear about that. Like, the, the organization was there too. So it, it wasn't just like fans who were like, let's get rid of this guy. Well, it the was- TNT guys were leading the charge on this thing nationally. I mean, I've, it was everybody. I've, everybody. I, Eric, you've watched basketball a long time, just like Nathan and I. I can never remember 
an NBA head coach being under fire from that specific show that much in one playoff series. Game in, game out, game in, game out. They were just killing this dude. I'm yeah. like, if he comes through this, I mean, he can come through Tra- anything at this point. But Tra- when they get Tra- through that and Philly's Tra- gone, I'm going, okay. Because I was scared of getting your butt kicked in Brooklyn. If you survive, then you got to go to another physical series. They're gone. Here's Atlanta. Right. I'm like, okay, well, this 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 is possible. I think they can make a run. Phoenix never, I guess, really never concerned me um, necessarily. You know, you lose a game one to everybody in that playoff series. So I really wasn't worried even at that point uh, of that series. But I think once they got past Brooklyn and I saw Philly wasn't there, that's when I was like, okay, they might do this. And nobody. I, 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 there's one person that is happier than Nathan Marzion that the Bucs won a championship, happier than Eric Name that the Bucs won a championship, and happier than me, Steve Sparky Pfeiffer, that the Bucs won a championship that year. Do we know who this is? Brandon freaking Jennings. <laughs> Nobody made out more than Brandon Jennings with a Bucs and six. The dude got to be in the parade. Now yeah. he's doing this whole tough crowd clothing line, the whole deal. Like, he reinvented himself off of Bucks in six for that whole run. Like nobody was happier that they finished the deal than Brandon Jennings, Eric name. Yeah. I mean, it, it could not have worked out better. And honestly, I, I, I have always wondered what people on the outside thought of this. Like if you're <laughs> like, if you're in Milwaukee, you get it. Like, sure. you're like, okay. Yeah. You know, like there's like this false bravado, this like idea that like, Oh yeah, you know, we can beat anyone, blah, 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 like all this stuff. But if you're on the outside, you have to be thinking, why do they like this? Like, right. why do they believe in this man who said this that this sorry, sorry Bucks team was gonna beat the Heatles? Like, why yeah. should like why does anyone like him in the city? And here everyone in Milwaukee is like, he's the prophet. He knows hero. Yep. like it's it I I truly do. That is one thing that I end up like looking back on this. I mean, like. I wonder what people actually think like on the outside of everyone in Milwaukee being like, that's the profit right there. Brandon Jennings. And it's funny. Cause I remember even some people that like, you know, they are bucks fans, but they didn't really follow the team closely until they were <laughs> in the finals and everything. And those people were like, I, I, I talked to them, you know, even like a year later and I would be talking about bucks and six and they're like, yeah, where did that even come from? And I'm like, you don't know where that came from. Like that was Brandon Jennings, man. And it was just like, it's funny. Cause even the people that, aren't necessarily like they weren't following the team back then. And even them kind of just, they think it just kind of happened out of nowhere. And I'm like, no, this started in like 2013. Like this has been a thing for like a decade. Um, I just want to quick talk again about the, I I was going to say in that Brooklyn series. um, First off, it's so funny. I remember back when Charles Barkley would be like every game, he's like, they're the biggest bunch of idiots, but they're going to win the finals, but they are the (laughs) biggest bunch of idiots. And I'm like, it's so true. Like, it's just, it's exactly how everyone feels about them. Um, But that game seven thinking about how much swung on that and like Bud's probably, you know, Bud's gone. If they lose that drew holiday, that trade looks like a big, you know, big mistake. If they, if they lose that, cause he struggled up until the very closing minutes of that game. And, you know, obviously then Durant's moving on. Durant might have an, another ring at this point. It just so much changed on that one game. And it's like, I, I, th- I always think back to that game as like, that was, that was honestly just the craziest moment of the whole playoffs to me. Um, was that one game and just how much it swung everything. And then obviously it leads to, you know, the, them getting to the finals and then those crazy finals games. Which, Eric, which was your favorite moment of the playoffs there? Game seven in Brooklyn, game five, the uh, steal and oop, the block, 
game six, 50 piece. There's so many moments to pick from, but if you had to pick one. I mean, so I, I've had this conversation a, a number of times after that playoff run. Um, I, I've told people, I think maybe the best basketball I've ever seen played was Bucks Nets in that series. Like when Durant hit God level, yeah. I, I don't, I, there was nothing anyone could do. Like the, the Bucks were doing everything. PJ Tucker was playing football against him. And it was just like, well, I'm going to put 50 on your head. And it, I, I just, it was so difficult to comprehend what he was doing and how he was able to do it. That they're like, that's one thing that really sticks with me, but that's like not a moment. That's just like a general feeling and a general awe of, oh my gosh, this guy is, has reached a, a plane of existence I didn't know was possible on an NBA basketball court. And the Bucks beat that dude. So like, then you're starting to think like, okay, that must mean like they're doing something special. So to me, I, I wrote it the night of, but the to Giannis's block in game four just continues to blow my mind because as I wrote in my story, he defended the alley and the oop. In a single play, both of them. He, he defended the alley, he forced the pass, and then he went and blocked the dunk that should yep. have put him in no man's land. And he did it jumping off the leg that I thought was broken a week earlier. So, like, to me, like, if we're talking specific moment, obviously, I, I as I told you, like, the steal in the alley-oop was the moment I felt like it was real. But to me, the moment that I just could not believe was that block it, it it defies logic that a single man can defend both the alley and the oop against a team that had been beating teams with that throughout the postseason like you're looking at Devin Booker he made the perfect read he throws a perfect pass De- DeAndre Ayton doesn't fumble the pass he doesn't stumble on his way to the rim nothing it's literally just gonna be a two-hand dunk in Giannis somehow turns all the way around, gets to it, gets to it before it gets to the rim, avoids a goal set, all of that. It's To me, that's the moment that is is just, uh, like if you're talking about where the like the pantheon of basketball exists, like that's right up there. And, and I know we at, at The Athletic wrote that night and Pat Connaughton talked about it on stage after the game was like, is that better than the LeBron chase down in game seven against the Warriors? Like if we're talking about the greatest finals block of all time, and like if we're talking degree of difficulty, yes, it obviously is better than that one. Uh, moment, I understand, is like a minute and a half left in Game Seven, so maybe you can give the edge to LeBron there. But like we're talking greatest defensive plays ever made, that's right there in the conversation. I'll I'll interject and say if we're talking moment, for me, the moment that I found out Giannis could still play in the playoffs <laughs> for me, because when he went down, I remember doing post game show on SSP going. Yeah, dude. I mean, he, there's just no way. I, even if it's just a severe sprain, he's not going to be back in time for the finals. I mean, we're in the conference championship. There's no way he's coming back. And all I was worried about is if this is severe, we're going to miss all of next year. So this is just going to be a complete waste of a season next year. Yeah, they may be a seven seed or a six seed, but you're going to waste a whole year of Giannis. I, I don't know anybody that saw that and said, Oh yeah, he'll be good for the he'll be good for the finals if they get there. Like I don't know anybody. And when Ted Davis was on, he was like, "I went in the next day expecting to hear he was done." Yeah, I mean, could you believe that he was able to play that 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 in that quick of a turnaround? I mean, we're reporters, right? So like, we're looking for the confirmation of you know sprained knee, torn this, like torn that, and like 
it kept coming back empty. Like you would talk to people and they're like, no, it's just a sprain. And it was like, I saw the play. And that's <laughs> it's a picture of him with his leg bent the wrong no, way. Like that, it was not just a sprain. His leg almost fell off. Like there's no way that it's just a sprain. So yeah, I mean, it, it truly is just unbelievable. And, you know, you think back to that game one in Phoenix and like, I remember the story I wrote after the game was like, yeah, it didn't go well. Phoenix played great, but Giannis played and he made like a chase down block and he scored 20 points. Like nothing else matters. Like he played, he looks, he doesn't look like himself, but he looks somewhat similar to himself. He, at moments he could look like that. The Bucs have a chance. Like uh, that was my game one takeaway of the NBA finals in a game where like it didn't really feel competitive at any moment. But you still thought, okay, there's a chance. Like he's on the floor and he yep. played. And then, yeah, and then immediately in game two, he had 40. And <laughs> it was like Chris and Drew, Chris and Drew were awful in that game. And I'm like, well, we were kind of close and like they sucked. And Giannis is playing on one leg and we still were close. Like it, that kind of was like, okay, maybe Giannis can still carry us in this and, thing. Um, and, and I was going to say too, like speaking to like the confidence of those two. I, as I told you, I was getting ready to leave Phoenix, write my story and be like, I don't know how the Bucks do anything against them. And as I'm phrasing questions to Chris and Drew, who took the like the podium together that night, they're just laughing, having a good time in my <laughs> questions. And I was like, is, is this not the NBA Finals? Am I tripping right now? Like, <laughs> am I somewhere where like the games didn't count in Phoenix? Like, how are you guys so confident? And like to their credit, they they had a lot of confidence in like what they were going to do, the adjustments that they were going to make. And obviously that's something that they had done throughout the playoffs, like start off a series kind of crummy and then find their way out. So like, I understand why they could, you know, maybe feel confident, but in the moment I was like, yo, this is the NBA finals. Like it doesn't seem like a laughing matter, but credit to those guys, like they just had the confidence to go out there and and come back and, and win the team's first championship in 50 seasons. Yeah, that, that picture that turned into a meme, it was like, there's just like, it just says, Suns lead 2-0, and you've got Chris and Drew just laughing, and then everyone's like, right. oh, it worked out. Um, when they did win, I wanted to ask, was there, like, how surreal was it for you? Because I remember for me, I was like, I almost like couldn't get fully emotional in the moment because I was like, it doesn't even feel real. Like, I, it, it hasn't even hit me yet. It took me like three days for it to actually sink in, like, they are actually the champs and like Giannis actually had 50. Cause as you said, it kind of felt too perfect. It felt like they, they really won in six and Giannis had exactly 50 points and you know, they won the title. And so did it feel real to you in the moment or did it take a few days for it to really sink in? I mean, I think the parade was when it hit yeah. like for yeah. me um, to like actually believe it. And I think a big part of that was, you know, as I was, watching like the nuggets win this year right like you're watching the footage from inside the locker room and everyone going crazy and you know like reporters put on the like the plastic poncho so you don't have like the stuff get ruined and like no one got to do that like like none of the reporters went in so like we're sitting in the hallways like uh, again throughout all of the covid playoffs like you'd get like shuttled in like you were a kindergartner like hold on to the rope this is where you can go this is where you can't go sit in this room and once you're done in this room we will walk you to somewhere else with another security guard because you guys can't just like float around there so like you know we're sitting in like the like the press room like 
conducting interviews and all that. And then all of a sudden you like poke your head out in between interviews and you see like Giannis walking by with a cigar and you see like PJ Tucker all of a sudden has a bottle of something and you're like, Whoa, okay. Like, can we go down that way? Like, I want to see what's going on like in there. That would be great. And so like for me, since that didn't happen, I think the parade was kind of when all of it like sunk in that like this actually happened because that that wall that had been up like with the pandemic and with COVID, um, you know, kind of got pulled away because we were all outside and that, apparently that was okay. Um, so it like that to me was when like you could actually have those like real human interactions once again, because before that it was just like, all right, you stay here. The players are going to be here and you don't really get to co-mingle. And to me, it was when the parade happened, that was like, okay, yeah, that did actually happen. He is Eric Name of The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Eric underscore name. And of course, you're listening to the Green and Growing Podcast. Download on your Odyssey app or if you download your favorite podcast ad, you can also check us out as we live stream all of these videos and then they're kept there forever on the Odyssey Sports YouTube page. I- I'd like to get away from reminiscing, if you don't mind, because we're already about 10 minutes away from wrapping this thing up or so. I-, I saw on The Athletic, I saw your piece on the Summer League going player by player, and God bless you for writing that much on each one of those players, really. Um but there's also a new power rankings up. I don't know if Amic wrote it or who wrote it, but somebody wrote a new power rankings on the athletic and Denver is one and the bucks are two. And on the write up of the bucks, they talk about really, is there going to be that much of a difference as far as for the Bucks going from bud to Adrian Griffin staff. And it got me thinking like, you know, this is a tough situation. A, he's never been a head coach. B, He's in a situation with a superstar where you're expected to be there because you have a superstar. He's not going to a situation where there's a bunch of really good players and they overachieved one year. Like, no, you have like the best player in the NBA or one of the best players in the NBA. So figure it out. You've got two legitimate players next to him. He's kind of in a situation of he could really only get maybe a little bit better, but could possibly get a lot worse depending on what they look like defensively and so forth. He's got two offensive guys in Stotts and Prunty, both former, one former Bucks head coach, one former intern Bucks head coach. That's the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life covering sports. But but do you kind of look at it the same way? Like, yeah, he might make them better, but it's probably not going to be that much better because of how good they really have been. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a tough situation. I, I think you at certain points with certain coaches, you're just going to kind of reach the end of their life cycle. Like uh, the voice doesn't mean as much as it did. And and I do think they had kind of reached that point with Mike Budenholzer that, you know, it was five years of the exact same thing. And in the modern NBA, five years is, I mean, one of the longest 10 years you're going to see, like, that's not how it normally goes. So I do think like just the freshness of, of a new voice, I think can help out quite a bit. Like if I'm Adrian Griffin, I'm leaning on pretty heavily. Like, Hey, remember the first year you had with Mike Budenholzer when you went from, you know, fringe all NBA to MVP, like we're going to do a bunch of new stuff this year. We're going to change some, some things up. And granted, you're not going to go from averaging 30 points per game to 40 points per game. Like that's not going to happen, but like, there's going to be enough new interesting stuff here that you can really take the league by surprise and you can do some new things and we're going to change some stuff up. And like, as you kind of talk about, like with the personnel, you can only do so much different, but like, I know it's summer league and I know there's a million fouls in summer league at all times. Um, But 
bud teams didn't fall like that in summer league. And that's not to say following's good, but like, if you're talking about like the ideas and how things are going to become different, like bud refused to let his teams fall. Like they weren't going to be that aggressive on the ball. They weren't going to waste that. They believed very much so that you should be low in foul rate. I don't think Adrian Griffin is going to believe that. Like, I don't think that's going to be a core tenant of his defense. So yeah, they might still play drop coverage with Brooke Lopez because that's what you have to play with Brooke Lopez because that is what's going to get you runner up for defense player of the year. But like how they pressure on the ball, how they pressure in passing lanes. Like I do think there is a, a lane there to be very different in that way this season. And then offensively, um, I, I mean, I think you're always going to be, you know, somewhat tethered to the idea that Jan's going to have the ball in his hands quite a bit. Like that's just, I mean, he's been the MVP with the ball in his hands a lot. And I yep. know he's always going to be want, like, want to be the desire of like, let's just have him screen all the time. Right. Like just turn him into a screener, turn him into a role man. That's what he did during the finals run quite a bit, or at least more than he has previously in his career. So I do think it's like getting in some of those ideas. This is a team that hasn't done a lot of dribble handoffs. I think you, if you watch the playoffs this year, you saw dribble handoffs are one of the easiest ways to create, create offense for average offensive players. It, like if you watch the Miami heat, you watch the Denver nuggets, like they run a lot of dribble handoff based offense. So, you know, can Terry Stotts figure out how to add some of that? And can Adrian Griffin then, you know, massage the the message in a way that is convincing to Giannis or, or convincing to Chris or drew or the, the whole roster. Like, so I agree that, this is a very good team. This is the best team in the league last year, record-wise. This is a team that has championship expectations. Those things aren't changing, but I do think there is, because of the rigidity with which Mike Boonholzer coached and the rigidity of his systems over the last five seasons, I do think there is like a real lane to be different than what they were in the past. And there will be many of the same things. Many of the players are going to look the same way because you're going to want them to. They're top 50 players in the NBA. So don't really change the formula too much on them. But I do think they can be different. I don't know if that's a good different. I, I really don't. Maybe, maybe that's a terrible idea and everyone's going to fall out of every game. I, I don't know. But like I do think there is a chance to be to be very different this year and try some new stuff. Um, regarding the roster, obviously the big thing right now is, you know, not, they don't really have a backup point guard and everyone wants to make trades for, you know, getting point guards and stuff. And you had your interview with Horst, which was awesome by the way. And you brought this up to him and, you know, he, I, I know he said that he was happy with where they're at. And he said, um, you know, he was happy with the secondary ball handlers they have. He brought that up. How much, you know, cause people automatically right away go to, well, that's just, you know, he's the GM. He's never going to say that they're going to make a trade. Well, obviously, but I also feel like there's there's ways to, if you were planning on making a trade, there's different ways to say that without saying anything where you could just be like, you know, we're going to continue to explore our options, blah, blah, blah. But for him to, you know, in my opinion, for him to say, you know, number one, they're happy with where they're at. And number two, that he brought up the secondary ball handlers. Now he believes that those guys maybe could fill that role. Do you, and you've obviously, you know, been around him, talked to him um, a lot. Do you put more stock in that when he said it that way? Did you, you know, do you feel that they are really content with what they have and that they're not going to really go too hard after a trade for a backup point guard? Just because I know that's a big thing everyone's, you know, talking about is trying to get a backup point guard. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the two questions that I pair up in that interview are that question about backup point guard and then the question I asked about Drew Holiday's playoff performance the last couple of years. And, and I think 
where people are concerned about not having a backup point guard or not having like, you know, someone that takes Drew off the ball a little bit more. Um, I think the big thing in that interview was that when John Horst is thinking about Drew Holiday's workload, he doesn't seem to be thinking about it on the offense. Or, or I shouldn't say be thinking about it. Of course he's thinking about it, but he's not concerned with it on the offensive end. It seems as though the hope is they can take away some of his workload defensively, and then that's going to help him be more efficient offensively and you know not have to put in all of the energy on defense that he has in the past, and that will help the offense. So I think it, when you pair that with like the idea that they're at peace at, at backup point guard, I think that's what you should be thinking about. And, and that was kind of how I – came away from that interview thinking about was that like the concerns over point guard, the concerns over ball handling, like that is something that I think obviously he addressed and understood like, yeah, I see why people would be concerned about it, but also the way that we are going to handle it is making Drew's job defensively less difficult is, you know, we really believe in Jay Crowder and what he can do. And, you know, he's going to prove it this year. Like, I, to me, that's the sense that I get. Like, I don't really think they're in a spot where they're actively trying to, you know, trade for another point guard type player or or make a big move in that way. And that's not to say they're not looking for moves. Horse has shown year over year. He's very aggressive when it comes to the trade deadline and trying to add that last piece. So it could go terribly for two months. And then all of a sudden December comes and, and they do make that move. But I do think for now they have a lot of belief in what they do internally. And honestly, I think I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see how they use Andre Jackson Jr. I think when you look at what Adrian Griffin has done in Toronto, where they just play a million wings and they don't really care about positions. And you look at what Andre Jackson Jr. did at UConn, where he was their lead ball handler. And he's a weird player. I'm not trying to like say he's going to magically, magically shoot. <laughs> but I do think they have a lot of belief that you know, if he can bring the ball up, get into dribble handoffs and do the the unique passing things that he can do, maybe he can help fill that role a little bit. And uh, again, they're going to try it. If it doesn't work, John Horst will get out of it. It's one thing that he learned from John Hammond, maybe better than anything else, is that John. if this stuff doesn't work, let's get out of it. it okay, we're going to try DJ Augustine as a true, pure point guard. Okay, that didn't work. Let's get out of it. And, and I do think if you're talking about horse and his strengths as a general manager, I, I think you point to his aggressiveness and the, the aggressiveness with which he pursues moves and the aggressiveness with which he's willing to get off of a move that isn't working out in the way that they wanted it to. Jay Crowder better find the fountain of youth if that's going to happen. So we'll see. Cause I, I don't, I'll believe that when I see it because Crowder was pissed, but didn't play him, but shouldn't have played him. He looked old. He looked slow. He didn't look good. He didn't deserve to be out there. I, I sided with Bud with not playing him. So that's a whole nother thing. I, I, I rewatched I, really quick. I'm sorry. I rewatched game five of the finals um, the other day. And like Jay Crowder looked so damn good in that game. Like he's dunking, he's hitting yeah. all his threes, his defense. I'm like, man, if we had this guy last season, like oh, it just, it makes me upset. Yeah. I, mean, no, you didn't I, have I, that I know you have a question, Sparky, but on Jay Crowder, I will say, uh, I think him signing for the minimum says a lot. Uh, I think that says, Hey, I recognize that I wasn't good enough last year and I want to sign up for this team and prove it. Uh, it. uh, Again, I, uh, that says nobody else wanted to pay him, Eric. That's what that says. You don't think his agent called around. Everybody's like, well, I don't know, man. I'm not so convinced you're going to get 5 million a year or 10 million a year from us. All I'm saying is he, if that was the case and he could have gotten a minimum anywhere, if you really hated it that much in Milwaukee, 
He could have yeah. gone somewhere else. If he didn't see the path, he could have gone somewhere else. And right. if the Bucks didn't see a path, they could have gone somewhere else. Well, so, they gave up a lot of draft picks. They gotta they gotta try this again from that perspective, probably. Not necessarily. Like you can you can live with getting rid of five second round picks. That's just the going right for a player at the trade deadline. Like that's just okay. how it works. Just put together a bunch of seconds, you'll get somebody. Yeah. I, I want to talk about one thing in that horse interview. And we talked about it because we we dove into that interview and did a whole podcast on it. I started laughing. And I was like, he's crazy. And I went to my number of guys, Nathan Marzian. He started laughing. It says, I'll find something. So he went looking during the podcast. I, I wasn't there when you did the interview. So I don't know if you busted out laughing. But when he makes a comment about, yeah, we have a history here of turning you know, good shooters into elite shooters or whatever the hell the comment was, something like that. I started laughing. I'm like, what is he talking about? Who is he talking about? More times than not, guys come here and don't shoot as well as they did before they got here. I mean, J.J. Redick wasn't the same player. I can give you a laundry list of guys that came here and had horrible years. And Nathan, what it looked, who did you find? Giannis, maybe? No, I, I said, uh, I said, I'm trying Brooke to Brooke Lopez now. one year. I mean, you, you guys are thinking way too hard. Like, well, you could, you can, like, I, and, Bobby, yeah, Porter, Bob, uh, Brooke Lopez. You can, I mentioned those two. Grayson Allen had the best three point shooting season of his career. Like, oh my God. You, if you just, like, the guys that they bring in to shoot in the five to 10 spots on the roster tend to do better. George Hill led the league in three point shooting one year. I mentioned, I mentioned Pat and Bobby when he did it because I said Bobby went to like 48%. Yeah. Pat went up pretty, you know, but he was. Pat kind of gradually went up and then um, Bobby had the one great year, then went back down to earth and Grayson kind of was a good three point shooter before he came here. So I was like, I, I guess I can't really give him. Credit I've for never that thought one. of Bobby Portis as elite. I've never thought of George Hill as elite. I've never thought of Pat Even, Connaughton as an elite shooter. I've never thought of every, any one of those guys as elite shooters. If you want to say, Hey, you know, we improve guys when they get here, they, they become better shooters. Okay, fine. When you start talking about making them elite shooters, now Steph Curry's elite shooter. Ray Allen was an elite Wait. shooter. These dudes are nice players. You're That's not getting Steph are. Curry, though. You're not getting Steph Curry. No, but those are elite shooters is what I'm saying. Hold on. These so guys what, are, are nice so players. Elite shooters can only make the Hall of Fame. Like, you're, you're well, only maybe, an elite shooter yeah. if you're a Hall of Famer. Like, yeah, I think so. elite shooter if you score 20 points per game. Like, we're talking about no. role players. Like, another player, those guys are elite. Another one I mentioned, I said, I, and I said, nobody thinks of him because obviously in the playoffs it goes down, but Drew was pretty much, I mean, I, I have the, I just pulled up the numbers. He was with the Pelicans, his final three years with the Pelicans, 34%, then 33, then 35. He comes here and in the regular season, he was 39, 41, 38. But again, obviously people forget about that because he falls off in the playoffs. And you could say that about a few guys where they were really good regular season shooters. They didn't really perform as well in the playoffs. So people don't think of them as great shooters. I was not prepared for this question, so I don't have it in front of me, but I think Bobby Porter shot 46% from three in the it, 2020, 2021 season. If I remember, I think correctly. it was, I think it was he read his numbers on the podcast at time when we went over 47, this it was 47. Yeah. That's there a, you go. I mean, whether or not you think that's a lead, that's a lead. Okay. Let's talk about Malik Beasley. How does he fit in to this roster? I mean, I think it's going to be an open competition at shooting guard. Like the the starting shooting guard role is going to be up for debate, and uh, I think Grayson Allen's going to have to prove it to a new coach. And I, I think there's like a real chance that Malik Beasley ends up being the the starting shooting guard at the at the start of the season. And again, maybe you could make the argument that because of his three point volume, because of his willingness to, I think he jacks up like 11 threes per 36 minutes for his career. Um, you could say maybe that's better off the bench. And I don't know if I could like argue that, like you might be right that Beasley's better in that role. Um, but also 
you know, I think we've seen a lot of times where Grayson Allen in the playoffs gets run off the line. Uh, teams don't let him get it off. And that doesn't really happen with Beasley. Like, he's just a, he's just such a happy chucker that, like, it's going to go up. And I do wonder if that is something that when they get to the postseason, they think can be valuable, they think can be, like, very good for them. I, I don't know that for sure. Um, but it, it's going to be an open competition. Like, Beasley will be in the conversation for starting shooting guard. And Grayson Allen may, might beat him in the end. Marzian, on this podcast all this year, we will never refer to Malik Beasley as Malik Beasley. We will only refer to him as the happy chucker going forward <laughs> because that is phenomenal. There should be T-shirts, the whole deal. I love it. The happy chucker. I'm a big fan. Yes. I, I found the stat. It was, um, I think, over the past three seasons, maybe two, um, the guys that take the most threes per 36 minutes were Curry, Clay, and him. So, yep. um, yeah, but – to close it out here, I wanted to ask about NBA Twitter's favorite guy, Marjan Beauchamp. Um, what do you, everyone, everyone, since he's young and he's exciting and he's kind of that mystery box, I think people just love him and they, you know, want to believe he's going to maximize his potential and turn into the best version he can be. People are saying he should start. People are saying he's, you know, I, I am kind of the pump breaks guy on that where I'm like, okay, he's a 24th overall pick. Um, we've seen, you know, some flashes of good, but also a lot of, you know, Pretty pretty bad stuff from him in the summer league. He wasn't great. He had a couple good games, but he wasn't fantastic. Um, do you see him having a large role this season? If you had to predict right now, because in my eyes, like I don't think he's a starter, and I don't think um, putting him with the starters is necessarily the best for his development. I think it would probably be best to p- play him 15, 20 minutes off the bench and let him have you know handle the ball a little bit, improve that aspect of his game in the regular season when it's not as important and then if he really does impress you, okay, then, you know, maybe he gets some minutes in the playoffs and can actually help you, you know, potentially win a championship. But I'm looking at this more as another development year for him and not one that I'm expecting him to have a huge role in. But I know a lot of Twitter disagrees. Yeah, I mean, I I think with Marjan, there's just like a couple things to keep in mind. Um, Referencing that interview with Horst, they want to get more athletic and they want to get younger. Like, I I know he kind of said like, you know, young guys tend to be athletic. So I would say we were more after athleticism than necessarily getting younger, but these things go hand in hand. So uh, I think them drafting Marjan last year was not an accident. It wasn't a coincidence that they happened to draft an athletic young guy with that pick last year. They could have gone, you know, a different route and, you know, gotten like a more proven person or someone less athletic that was more skilled. Like those guys tend to be around the end of the first round. And instead they went for someone a little bit more unproven that flashed a little bit more athleticism in Marjan. And uh, they did it again with Andre Jackson this year. Like that is like a, a very, to me, a very clear priority. And, and I think that means he's going to get a chance. I don't know if that means he's going to be ready for that chance. Uh, I think, to me, if you watch his summer league play, I think what was really exciting was how much he got to the free throw line in those first two games where he was fantastic. And yeah, game three, 0 for 5, scoreless, not great. In game four, I think he gets, he's scoreless in the first half, ends the game with 11 points. Like when you're thinking through kind of his performance and what he's about, I just think like the idea that he's put on probably another 10 pounds in the last year, the idea that like, I thought last year when he played too much, it was step back jumpers in threes. And 
if you are going to be one of the young athletic pieces, you need to show off the, the youth and the athleticism. And, and to me, those first two games in summer league were exciting for that reason, because he showed off, like, I can use my body and get to the line. I can use my body and finish at the rim. Like those are the things to me, like if you're talking about how he stays on the floor, those are the things that he has to do. And we'll see, you know, with the added strength and added weight, if he can still defend twos and threes. I, I think the Bucks wanted someone that was young and athletic. And, you know, after that draft last year, we were talking about him covering threes and fours. And I think the thing that I found most surprising there, during his rookie season was like, he was covering ones and twos. Like he, he was chasing point guards around screens. He was chasing shooting guards around and he showed off the foot speed and kind of like the hip flexion to be able to pull that off. And that to me is an exciting development. Like the bucks don't have someone like that. So I think he's going to get his chances. I just don't know if everything that he does on the offensive end is going to be consistent enough to get playing time. All right, that'll do it for Green and Growing. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day.